morning. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The word of the Lord. So we're in a series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. And if you've been with us, you've seen that each week, uh, this is a very little letter about one big question. And the question is, what is the gospel? As you read through the letter, one of the things you'll notice is that Paul uses very strong language. He uses very urgent language throughout this letter. And the question is, what is he so worked up about? What is he so urgent about? And it's just this. There's only one gospel. Don't miss it. That is the urgency of this letter. In other words, there's only one gospel. And if you get it, if you embrace it, if you bring it into your life, it has the power to transform your life. But if you miss the gospel, if you reject it, if you scoff at it, you will actually make shipwreck of your life. Paul is writing this letter because he wants people to understand what the gospel is and not to miss the gospel. Now, we just got into a section of the letter in which Paul is giving us some pretty deep theology. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, he introduced a phrase, and it's appeared in every one of our passages since then, uh, a little theological phrase uh, called justification by faith. What is that? Justification by faith. Paul, for Paul, that phrase is the heartbeat of the gospel. Uh, and so each week we've been seeing Paul unpack this phrase and, and describe what its impact on our lives would be. Now, last week we talked about how this doctrine of justification by faith actually helps us to grow spiritually. This week we find out what happens if you miss it. What happens if you miss it? Uh, this passage that we just read, you know, I'll be honest, it's a terrifying passage. Um, especially in our culture, this is a difficult passage uh, very frequently when we find difficult, thorny, complex, kind of repulsive things in the Bible, our instinct um, is to want to gloss over those things, uh, to want to dismiss those things, to want to uh, dismiss what Paul is saying and count it as maybe irrelevant or no longer having any um, purchase in our culture nowadays. We just kind of dismiss what Paul is saying. But it's in those most difficult passages of the Bible it's in the thorniest, most offensive places in the Bible. It's when you really dig into those passages, those are where the real jewels are. That's where the things that have the power to really transform your life are found. Don't miss the most difficult passages. That's where the really life-transforming parts of the Bible are found. And this passage is one of those places. Incredibly difficult passage. 
very thorny, offensive passage, especially in our culture, because if you read this passage, what's it all about? What word comes up over and over again as you read this? Curse. We modern people, we read that and we say, okay, you know, that's why we need to get rid of religion. All this talk about the curse of God. It's, it's so offensive. It's so negative. It's so psychologically harmful. This hurts people. All this talk about the curse. We should just get rid of this. But don't you see what happens? Here's the thing. In our late modern secular culture, we've gotten rid of God, but we have not gotten rid of the curse. For instance, what do I mean by that? Ancient people believed that because of their sin, there was alienation between them and God, that there was a a relational chasm between them and God, and that because of that chasm, they needed some bridge, some healing, some reconciliation to heal the chasm, the alienation between them and God. And unless they found it, they experienced anxiety and shame and fear and dread and condemnation. Now, here in our modern culture, what we've done is we've gotten rid of God We've, we've pushed God to the margins of society so that we live in a world in which God really plays no meaningful role in our public life together. We've gotten rid of God, but friends, we have not gotten rid of the curse. Our lives are still just as filled with anxiety, if not more anxiety, than ancient people ever were. I was actually reading um, some statistics on this this past week. Uh, one in five Americans experiences an anxiety disorder. Anti-anxiety medication is a $2 billion industry every year. College students are measurably more anxious than they used to be. And think about our political discourse. You know, our, our political lives in this country are filled with all kinds of fearful, apocalyptic language. We are just as filled with anxiety and fear and shame and dread and condemnation and apocalypse as the ancient people were. We've gotten rid of God, but we have not gotten rid of the curse. And it's in the midst of that that this ancient book and this theological principle, far from being irrelevant, actually helps us to make sense of one of the most pressing problems of our lives. How do we understand the anxiety, the dread, the condemnation, and the apocalypse that fills our lives, this passage helps us find out. And especially if we look at it under three headings this week, we're going to see the curse, the cross, and the consequences. Okay, The curse, what does that mean? What is the anxiety that fills our lives? The cross, what is God's solution for that? And the consequences, what are the implications of all of that for our lives? All right, The curse, the cross, and the consequences. Okay, So the first thing we see here this morning is the curse. Now, Paul begins this passage by making a claim and then citing an Old Testament passage to back up that claim. And you see the claim in verse 10. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And then immediately he cites from uh, the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, which says, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, Deuteronomy is the last of the first five books of the Bible. And that's commonly known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. And um, most of the Torah is the story of how God brought the children of Israel 
out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom in the promised land. And a huge portion of that is laying out all these laws and regulations, laying out all kinds of commands and rules and regulations for the Israelites. So most of Deuteronomy is laying out the law for the Israelites. But then in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, towards the end of the book, God spells out a series of blessings and curses. It's very interesting. In essence, God is saying, children of Israel, if you obey my law, then all of the blessings, here are all the blessings that will come into your life. But if you disobey me, if you reject me, if you betray me, then here are all the curses that will come into your life. Now, here's what you absolutely have to understand about all of this or it makes no sense. Everything that's happening in Deuteronomy, all of the law, all of the blessings and the curses, all of that takes place within the context of a covenant. What is a covenant? If you don't understand this, you won't understand what the law and the blessings and the curses are all about. What is a covenant? A covenant essentially is a promise of relationship. It's a promise of relationship. God is inviting the children of Israel into a relationship with him. That means that the blessings and the curses are never just arbitrary. It means that all of the law, all of the rules and the regulations, none of that is arbitrary. It's all part of a covenant relationship. In essence, God is saying, dear children, if you trust me, if you walk with me, if you turn to me, then, then I will be with you. I will bless you with my presence. The light of my face will constantly be shining upon you. You will always have my love and my blessing and my presence in your lives. Now, do you know what that is? To have the face of God shining on you like that? And we've been talking about it actually for the past couple of weeks. That's justification. What is justification? This idea of justification is something Paul has been bringing up over and over and over again in this letter to the Galatians. Paul mentions it here again in verse 11. He says, no one is justified, justified by God, before God, by the law. Now, what is justification? We keep saying it and defining it each week different ways, trying to give you a picture of what this means. Justification, very simply, is your status, your status before God. That's what it is. Justification is the status of being accepted, of being loved, of being welcomed, of being delighted in uh, by God. That's what it is. It's the status before God. Um, no one ever described this really any better than C.S. Lewis in this marvelous little essay, The Weight of Glory. Um, here's how he put it. He says, the longing to be acknowledged, to be met with some response to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality. This is all part of our inconsolable secret. Our deepest desire is acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. That the door on which we've been knocking all our lives would open at last. That's how C.S. Lewis describes it. Now, to give a much more recent, much different example of this, um, Back in 2013, uh, the Miami Heat actually won the NBA championships. And uh, LeBron James was playing for them at that time. And I remember a picture of him right when they won that championship. There's a picture of LeBron James, and he's holding the trophy over his head. Do you remember that picture? And he's got a, a cap on his head that says, champion. 
And, and, and you can see he's surrounded by a throng of people in all their arms, their hands are up in the air, and um, there's confetti coming down. And you can see by the look on his face that LeBron James is just basking in an ocean of praise and glory and applause and adoration. Friends, that is justification. And that is what every single one of us is looking for. Whether you believe in God or not, we're all looking for that. You know, maybe not literally an ocean of people applauding you if you're kind of more of an introverted person, but we are all looking for ultimate love. We're all looking for ultimate acceptance. We're all looking to be welcomed into the heart of things. That is what every single one of us is looking for. In other words, to put this in covenant terms in Deuteronomy language, to be justified is to get the blessing of God's presence in your life. The blessing of God's presence in your life. Therefore, to be cursed means to be rejected by God, to be cut off from God, to be ejected from his presence, to lose his face, to lose your relationship with him. If our deepest desire is ultimate love and ultimate acceptance, then our deepest fear is ultimate rejection to ultimately be cast off and cut off from the presence of God. So when Paul says in verse 10, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Here's what he's saying. First of all, he's pointing to the utter impossibility of keeping God's law perfectly. Because notice how he says it. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all of the things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, he's saying God doesn't grade on a curve. You know, notice how he puts it. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. All who rely on works of the law. He's forcing us to ask ourselves the question, what do I rely on before my acceptance before God, or if you don't believe in God, for my sense of justification or acceptance in this world? If we rely on being a good person, then we have to be prepared to live up to, all the way up to, God's standard. So for example, the question always comes up, well, why does Christianity put so much emphasis on faith in Jesus? Well, it's so narrow. Why, why can't any good person find God? Do you see the assumption that's in there? The assumption is that it's by being a good person that you can be justified before God. So here's the question. How good do you have to be? What's the standard? Have you ever noticed, by the way, that the standard is always higher for other people than it is for yourself? You know, by nature, as human beings, by nature, we are far, far, far more... Um, realistic and demanding about the faults of other people and far more accepting and forgiving of our own faults and failures. Haven't you ever noticed that? In other words, we hold everyone else accountable, but we grade ourselves on a curve. But if we're going to rely on moral performance, then there can't be any room in our lives for self-deception or self-justification. We have to be prepared and willing to look not just at the things we do, but all of the reasons for the things we do, all of the motivations for even the good things that we do. You start doing that, and you'll find out very quickly, if you're being honest with yourself, that you are nowhere near as good a person as you know you ought to be. So first of all, Paul is telling us it is absolutely impossible for any of us to keep God's law perfectly. None of us are as good a person as we ought to be. If you rely, I mean rely, on being a good person for your sense of justification, what you're relying on is a house of cards. It'll come tumbling down as soon as, as, soon as you put any weight on it. But secondly, here's what we do. 
okay? If we can't find the justification that we're looking for by, you know, living up to God's standard, then we're still going to have to seek that sense of justification and love and acceptance in some way because as human beings, we can't live without that. So here's what we do. We get into a covenant relationship with all kinds of other gods. We get into a covenant relationship with the God of accomplishment or romance or money or success or achievement, um, the gods of grades or athletic achievements or performance, whatever it might be. And here's what these gods say, okay? It's a covenant relationship. So the God comes to us and it says, here are the blessings and the curses, all right? If you obey me, if you serve me, I will bless you. But if you fail me, I'm going to curse you. It's kind of like... um, those um, conditioning chambers they put animals in, like it's a, a box. Have you ever seen those or read about those? There's a box or a chamber and you put a rat in there and then when the light comes on, the rat is supposed to go over and push the lever and when they push the lever, out comes a little reward, you know, like some food pellets or something like that. You push the lever, out comes the reward. The gods that we serve are the same way. Our, our performance, as long as we're performing, You know, as long as we're pushing the lever, out come the pellets. Boop, we get a little reward. Our gods bless us, but if we fail, what happens? For instance, you know, it's natural if somebody criticizes you to be hurt by that. That's natural. But if you serve the God of approval and somebody criticizes you, what happens? You fall apart. You break down. You explode with anger. What's going on with that? Your covenant God is cursing you. Or, for instance, say you're in a relationship and somebody rejects you. It's natural to be hurt by that. But if you serve the God of romance and that happens to you and all of a sudden you hate yourself, you loathe yourself, you can't sleep, you can't eat, what's going on? Your God is cursing you. Or if you serve the achievement God, the success God, um, and, and, and today's success isn't quite as stunning as yesterday's success was, And all of a sudden, you just can't live with yourself. You start condemning yourself and and loathing yourself. What's going on? Your God is cursing you. All of the anxiety and the dread and the condemnation we feel in our lives is because the gods we're serving are actually cursing us. They're saying, "If if you serve me, I'll bless you. You know, out come the food pellets. But if you fail me, I will curse you. Now, there may even be some of you here this morning that are thinking to yourself, well, Okay, I understand that concept, but honestly, I've never experienced anything like that. I don't feel cursed like that. And if you're, you know, maybe one of those one or two weird people that are here this morning, that for you, that's actually your experience, you don't feel cursed by anything in your life, I would just like to suggest that if that's the case, it's because so far you've been really, really good at pushing the lever and getting the rewards to come out so far but you know that if that's true, also there's a pressure, there's a drivenness in your life to keep pushing that lever, to keep getting the rewards, those food pellets to come out. You know what that drivenness is? You know what that pressure is? That's your God telling you, serve me or else. Serve me or else, I'm gonna curse you. Even in in the drivenness and the ambition of our lives, a lot of times that can be our covenant God threatening to bring a curse down upon our heads. Friends, whatever you rely on, by the way, I know when I said, you know, you're weird a couple of moments ago, that sounds a little weird. I mean, it's very, un, it's very irregular for anybody to actually have that experience, and I hope you understand that. I didn't mean to call you weird. <laughs> but I do want you to, Im, to investigate and to interrogate your life 
if you're not feeling a sense of curse ever, anxiety or any kind of condemnation in your life ever, I would, I would encourage you to interrogate your life and to interrogate your heart and to interrogate those 3 a.m. moments in your life because it's there. So, because whenever you rely on, on anything in this world for your sense of acceptance, your sense of love or justification in this world, whatever you rely on, when you fail that God, not if, but when you fail that God, it's going to curse you. And, and that's awful when that happens. But let me offer you just one brief application before we move on. When that happens, it's a horrible thing to experience, but it's actually also a wonderful opportunity to ask yourself a question, what am I really relying on? What am I really relying on for my sense of worth and value and meaning and justification in this world? If you have one or two people in your life that you really trust and who really know you very well, ask them if you can really trust those people. Because tell you what, they already see. They see, they know what you rely on. All the people around us can see that. Ask yourself that question, what is it I'm really relying on? So that when those moments of cursing, of, of shame, of condemnation, of dread, of fear come into your life, that is an opportunity to interrogate, what covenant God am I really serving in this world? That's the curse, and it's the first thing we see here. But secondly, we see the cross. In other words, what is God's solution to the curse that we all experience? And here's where we're at. We're all under a curse because we all rely on something to give us a sense of love and acceptance, worth, value, meaning, and justification in this world. And whatever it is we rely on, we all fail it. Whatever standard we hold up, we can't live up to that standard. And it's at this point that a lot of people might say, well, okay, I understand that, and, and I can even... I can even agree with some of that to a certain extent, but here's what I don't get, and here's what really bothers me about Christianity. Why can't God just forgive us? Why all this need for a cross, this need for blood, for atonement, for sacrifice? Why can't God just forgive us? And here's the answer. Think about what we've seen so far. The law, the blessings, and the curses, all of that, it's part of a covenant. What was a covenant? What did we say? A covenant is a relationship. Now think about your own relationships. When somebody hurts you, can you forgive that person? Well, yes, but it depends on a couple of things, doesn't it? First of all, it depends on who that person is. Because the closer that person is to you, the deeper the hurt when they do betray you. You know, it's one thing for your neighbor or your coworker to to hurt you. It's a much different thing for a family member, a spouse, a sibling, a parent to really hurt you. The hurt goes deeper because the person is closer. Secondly, it also depends on what the person actually did. It's one thing for somebody to break your window. It's quite a different thing for someone to murder your family. In fact, you know how it is. In our culture, in our society, we think and believe that there are actually certain things, certain hurts, certain crimes that we would consider unforgivable. Isn't that so? Unforgivable crimes in our society. Why is that? It's because the hurt is so big, the offense is so horrible, um, the, the crime is so huge that to offer forgiveness for something like that would feel, it would feel like a suspension or a denial of justice to actually forgive somebody, but it's not. it's not. It would not be a suspension of justice, it would be a transfer of justice. What do I mean? Well, let's just say, um, hypothetically speaking, 
that somebody really hurt you, really betrayed you, the unforgivable offense, and that you were to offer forgiveness to someone for that unforgivable offense, what would that involve in your life? That would hurt, wouldn't it? In fact, the more unimaginable the offense, the more unimaginably it would hurt you to forgive that offense because instead of making that person pay, you would be paying. Instead of making that person suffer, you would be suffering. To use the language of this passage, instead of bringing the curse down on that person, you would be taking the curse upon yourself. In other words, it wouldn't be a transfer, a suspension of justice, it would be a transfer of justice. You would actually be their substitute. And friends, if that is true for us at a finite human level, that you can never suspend justice, you can only transfer it, then how much more would that be true at an infinite divine level, that the God of the universe, how much more true would that be for God, that there can never be a suspension of justice, a transfer of justice has to take place. Friends, that is exactly what happened on the cross. Because what, Paul, what does he tell us in verse 13? Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Friends, this verse, this passage, this is holy ground. Do you realize what Paul is saying here? I mean, first of all, when Paul says Christ became a curse for us, that, that little word for, you know, for you grammar geeks, this is just a little preposition, tiny little word. But friends, the gospel is contained in the prepositions. Because that little word for is a word that means literally on behalf of in place of, for the sake of. That's what it means. In other words, it means that Jesus Christ is not just our example. He's our substitute. He took the curse that we deserve. But it goes even deeper than that because notice Paul doesn't just say that Jesus simply took the curse. The language he uses is he says Jesus became a curse for us. He became a curse. What does that mean? In fact, he says something very similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says God made Jesus to become sin. He made Jesus to become a curse. What does that mean? Well, it can't mean that Jesus literally was a sinner or literally was a curse because Paul says God made him who knew no sin to be sin. So it can't mean that Jesus was literally became sin. What it does mean is that Jesus legally became sin. In other words, God treated Jesus as if he had done everything we did so that he could treat us as if we had done everything Jesus did. To put it a different way, God counted or regarded Jesus as being a sinner so that he could count or regard us as being righteous. In fact, that's made very vivid for us in this passage. Notice Paul quotes once again from Deuteronomy. Um, in chapter 21, it says, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And he says, this is talking about Jesus. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Here's what this is talking about. Um, in those days when someone committed a crime that was punishable by death, uh, when they executed that person, instead of burying them right away, they would actually hang them on a tree as a very public and vivid display and proclamation of that person's guilt. It was a very public proclamation and display of the guilt of that person. Now, here's the question. What does someone who's committed the unforgivable offense deserve? 
What do they deserve? Dear ones, don't you know that on the cross, all of the condemnation, all of the punishment, all of the darkness, all of the the pain and the hurt and the suffering that our sin deserves, all of that fell into Jesus' heart. What is justification? What is the blessing we're all looking for? It's, it's the face of God shining on us. It's the love of God pouring into us. It's, it's the presence of God welcoming us in. Friends, from all eternity, Jesus Christ had that. There was never a moment in his life when Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, when he wasn't constantly basking in that. He had it from all eternity except in this one place on the cross because on the cross, Jesus Christ was cut off from the presence of God. He was shut out from the love of God. He was ejected from the very light of God's face. Jesus was cast out into the unimaginable, freezing, howling wasteland of utter darkness and forsakenness. Jesus was was rejected from the love of God. He experienced the curse. He took the curse. He became a curse for you, for us. Why? So that you could receive the blessing of God, the face, the light, the love, the joy of God in your life so so that the door you've been knocking on all your lives would open at last and you would be welcomed in. You know, every other God says, fail me and I will curse you. But Jesus Christ is the only God that says, fail me, and I will take the curse for you. Every other God says, fail me, and I'll curse you. Jesus is the only God that said, fail me, and I will take the curse for you. Do you realize what that would actually mean for your life? Friends, we've seen the curse and all the anxiety, fear, dread, and condemnation that fills our lives. We've seen the cross, how God has dealt with that curse in our lives. But lastly, let's just take a moment to look at the consequences of this. Let me offer you just a couple of brief applications, a couple of brief thoughts about what would this actually look like in our lives at a day-to-day, very practical level if you knew this was true. First of all, this helps you to live with yourself. It helps you to live with yourself. Remember what we've seen. What does the curse mean in our daily lives? At the most basic level, every single one of us knows that there is a standard, a standard of rightness, of integrity, of honesty, a standard of moral excellence, moral perfection, and every single one of us experiences that standard pressing down on us and calling us to live up to it, and none of us can. We all know that. And do you know the the result of that is we all experience the curse. You know what that is? The curse is the anxiety the dread, the fear, the the self-condemnation we feel when the gap between what we're supposed to be and what we really are is exposed. The curse is the the pain and the anxiety, the psychological, emotional, spiritual pain and anxiety we experience when the gap between what we're supposed to be and what we really are is exposed. And, And that gap creates a tension in our lives. There's a tension between what we're supposed to be and what we really are. When that gap is exposed, there's a tension there. And that tension creates a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety in our lives, a lot of dread, a lot of condemnation. But when you trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross, that he became the curse so that you could receive the blessing, all of a sudden that resolves that tension of the gap. It doesn't make the gap disappear. It's still there. 
that gap is still there, but it does relieve the tension of the gap because the more secure you are in Christ and what he did for you, the, the safer it is for you now to be honest about yourself. The safer it is for you to be honest about all your faults and your failures. The safer it is for you to be honest about all the ways you failed to live up to the standard. The reason we won't look at all that stuff is because we're insecure. We don't feel the security we need to actually be able to, to look at the gap in our lives. We're too ashamed, we're too insecure, we're too fearful. Um, it's too overwhelming to be that honest about ourselves. But when you know that the condemnation you dread and the fear that you, um, that, that the curse that you fear, when you know that all of that has been resolved for you by Jesus on the cross, all of a sudden it doesn't make the gap disappear. It does give you the security you need now to be honest about the gap. The, the safer you are, the more secure you are in what Christ did for you, the more honest you can be about the gap in your lives. And the more honest you can be, the more you can invite God to come into your life and actually get to work on that stuff with you. So first, the cross actually helps you to live with yourself. But secondly, it helps you to live with others. It helps you to live with others. Remember what we said a while ago? We said by nature, we as human beings, by nature... We are far more demanding and realistic about the faults of others and far more accepting and forgiving about our own faults. The cross reverses that. The cross means that we can now be far more demanding and realistic and honest about our own faults and far more accepting and forgiving about the faults of other people's. And let me be clear about something. That does not mean, you know, that is not a suspension of justice. That does not mean that justice should not um, be enacted in our lives and in our world, that does not mean that we should not be honest about other people's faults, and it does not mean that we should never hold people accountable when it's appropriate for the faults and the failures of their lives. It doesn't mean any of that. What it does mean is that we now know in the depths of our heart that we're no better than anyone else. In fact, if we're being honest with ourselves, we'll know that far more often we're actually far worse than other people are. And we'll be able to be honest about that, be more forgiving, more accepting of others. The more honest we are about ourselves, the more forgiving we are to other people. There will actually be um, a grace and a charity and a welcome and an acceptance that we can extend towards other people because we know we've received the grace, the charity, and the welcome and the acceptance that Jesus has offered to us through his cross. And you know, I can't think of many things that we need in our society right now more than this. Because friends, the gospel is the only thing that can bring true reconciliation to our world. It's the only thing that can bring true racial reconciliation, political reconciliation, uh, gender, class, uh, economic reconciliation. It's the only thing that can bring true reconciliation to this world. Because the world we live in, we are always dividing the world up into two groups of people. There's the one who wear the white hats and the ones who wear the black hats. And we need that division in our lives in order to feel good about ourselves. We're always dividing the world into the good people and the bad people. The oppressed and the oppressor. The, uh, the righteous and the evil. The, the wicked and the upright. And we need that because that's the only way that we can feel good about ourselves, that we can find somebody who's worse than we are so that we now feel justified in bringing the curse down on them. But the cross shows us that we're all under the curse and the cross shows us that Jesus absorbed the curse so that we could receive the blessing of God. Friends, when you see that, all of a sudden you can be more honest about the gap in yourself 
and more forgiving of the gap in others. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Let the reality of that fall ever deeper into your heart and heal the gap in your life so that you can be an agent of blessing and healing in the lives of others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, this incredible word and pray even now that you would um, help us to bring the reality of the cross ever deeper into our lives, that it would ever more heal the condemnation of the curse in our lives. Father, we pray that you would use this to make us more accepting and forgiving of others and more honest and realistic about ourselves, that it would be safe to do so because we know that we are totally secure in Christ. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.